Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about how to make sure your old horse gets the very best care. Old horses hold a special place in our hearts. Our age partners have helped us learn, they've helped us reach our riding goals, and they've served as longtime companions. I have two senior horses myself, one that I bred and raised, and I wouldn't trade them for anything. However, like their human counterparts, horses do face health challenges as they age. Preventative and proactive care can help keep our old horses comfortable and happy longer. Tonight, to answer your senior horse health care questions, we're joined by Dr. Brian Waldridge of Park Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. A large animal internal medicine specialist, Dr. Waldridge cares for horses of all ages. However, when asked about the time he spends caring for retired champion thoroughbreds at Old Friends uh, Retirement Farm, he says, some people golf, some people fish, and I like to take care of old racehorses. Welcome, Dr. Waldridge. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about why these old horses are so special to you? Well, you know, with the uh, horses that has lived so long, I think people have really special bonds with them. You know, a lot of people have raised them, so you know, it's even more so than dogs and cats. You know, with their long lifespan, that span, and I think a lot of people are just really attached to them because they've been such a large part of their lives for so long. And you know, to me, that's really, really cool uh, part of the human animal bond to be able to talk to people about that and. You know, just kind of be part of that with them, and then out at old friends, I really enjoy that. Uh, you know, seeing those horses, I saw a race on TV that I thought I'd never see, and then there they are in front of me. You know, I still freak out a little bit when I see some of them. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of superstars, huh? So, how how long have you been working with the horses at old friends? I guess I've been doing it five or six years. I, I, I'm not really sure. It's kind of like having an old horse. The time just goes to buy, and you don't really pay attention to it, but. Uh, uh, I think it's about that amount of time. Okay. So I want to give our audience a quick review of what to expect tonight. Um, so for our format, we're going to be starting with the questions everyone submitted during registration. If you have questions you'd like to ask live um, or you would like a clarification on a response, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. If you're listening to our archive or our podcast and are interested in joining us live during our event so that you can get your questions answered live, you can register to receive announcements about our events at thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, let's go ahead, Dr. Waldridge, and get started. We have a question from Marilyn, or Marilyn in Michigan, and she wants to know, at what age is a healthy horse considered a, quote, equine senior citizen? I went and looked at a lot of different papers, and there's been a, a fair number, not a lot written on that lately, just to see what the published literature criteria was. And it was interesting to me because there was agreement on everything I could find that a geriatric horse was considered to be 20 years of age and older. So, I, And I think that's you know, changed a bit in the last few years because our horses are – tended to live longer with our help, but um, at least as it stands right now, uh, 20 years of age and older. Okay. Um, Peggy is in South Carolina, and she wants to know if having a, quote, job is important for a senior horse's quality of life. You know, I think that really depends on the horse and, and what it did before. You know, I know, um, you know I've had old horses, uh, one of my own, and, and he was perfectly happy to walk around and eat grass, which I think 
most horses probably want as their job description. But uh, you know, you know, things like race horses or a horse that's you know been an eventer or a horse that's shown a lot. I think sometimes it's harder for them to kind of transition because they've never really had all day to do nothing. You know, almost like you hear about uh people other than veterinarians who are able to retire eventually, you know, that <laughs> that uh that that they have a hard time you know, kinda of knowing what do I do? You know, there's this I like this grass but I don't know what else to do. And I, I think it's horse dependent, but I think most of them are pretty happy. If they get to eat grass and walk around, you know, that that's good enough for most of them. Do you think it comes down to having a regular routine for them that they know what to expect every day? I think so. You know, I think most horses are kind of happy getting fed at the same time and kind of knowing what's going to happen. And, and you know, that goes back to those horses that had jobs that they're, they're pretty used to having a regimented day where they more or less do the same thing at the same time every day, get fed at the same time every day. So I, you know, I think they, they like a little bit of a constancy in their life. Okay. We have a question from Linda in Texas, and she wants to know if there's an average age that horses live to. She said that she's had one that's made it to 34, one that was 30, and then she just had one that she had to put down at 26. So that's a, a, a broad range of ages. Uh, what should we expect for a horse's lifespan? Yeah, it seems like early to you know getting to near 35 seems to be about as old as you you hear horses being and I use the example of these thoroughbred stallions here in Kentucky uh, that if you follow them it seems to be the rare one that that gets to you know 35 or so and and thinking they're they're pretty pampered so they probably had every advantage they could have in their life so I always figure about, you know, early 30s is about how long a horse is going to live. You know, there's probably the oldest I guess I've uh, dealt with was 32 or so. And, you know, the other thing about them is minis and ponies live longer than larger horses. So like uh, like dogs, you know, the, the littler dogs tend to live longer and, and horses are the same. So a mini or a donkey or a pony will, uh, will definitely defy that rule. And, you know, they can live, you hear those in the 40s and 50s. We have a question from Jennifer in California, and she said she'd like to know more about how to support a horse with early stages of EORTH. Um, so can you explain a little bit to us what that disease is? I'm going to let you pronounce the long actual term for it. <laughs> and then yes. explain what it is and, and, and how we can support horses in the, that early stage of that disease. So what it is, is it's um, basically a change that, an age-related change that happens in the incisor teeth, you know, those front top and bottom teeth of older horses tends to be more geldings. I think every case I've seen has been geldings, and I believe what's been reported would show that. And, and basically what happens is those teeth, you know, as their teeth grow constantly through their life, as horses do, that some changes occur to the the alveolus, the tooth socket, into the tooth itself, where the tooth tends to have um, more cement around it, which is the stuff that helps hold the tooth in the socket and some of that loss of the bony socket. And when that happens, those tooth, teeth become loose. And when they become loose, they become painful. And as part of being loose also, they pack feed material in there and become painful. So 
you know, to try to uh, manage those, you know, probably the best way is to take them to surgery and, and that can almost always be done standing and remove the teeth, remove all the teeth and um, the incisor teeth. Because usually if you radiograph horses to have that problem, virtually all those incisor teeth are affected. And so if they're not affected at that time, they're probably going to be. And so surgery to remove those tends to make those horses do very well. You know, there are horses that don't, don't do that great post-op, but for the most part, um, you know, if you talk to people, almost everybody's glad that they had that surgery. Uh, so before surgery, things like just trying to keep the feet as soft as you can, you know, paying attention to forage quality and having it be less mature where it's a little easier for them to chew, anything to help avoid dental pain. And, you know, you may have to look at their teeth and maybe if they'll let you rinse their mouth out with hose, things like that to help keep those sockets clean. Okay. And I think that the acronym that I read out wasn't correct. So I think it's equine odontoclastic tooth resorption and hypercementosis. Is that correct? That that sounds right. Every time I try to say it, I end up saying like it, I, I end up making it sound like Eeyore every time I say it. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I, I will trust the moderator. I am I'm proud of myself for giving it a try. So I thought I would at That's least why I did. put an effort in. <laughs> so. Good job. Um, so we have a question from Sally in California, and she wants to know if an older horse has had his incisors taken out because of that. Um, how well do they fare in the long run? So you said pretty well. Um, is how because I what I've heard about this condition because um, there was some concern that one of my horses had it and he ended up not, but that they they do like you said do really well with uh, the teeth removed and that they actually seem way more comfortable once the teeth are removed uh, than they do before they have the incisors taken out. So is that what you found in treating these horses? Most of them. I, I've had some that didn't do as well post-op and some of those had more severe, I think, changes to the, to the jawbone where when you had to go back in there and take out some loose pieces of um tooth socket of the of the mandible or maxilla and it, but most horses do very well with it and they just seem to be happier you know, one of the things they describe with that is the horses before that sometimes their um attitude changes and the horses are sour or you know they may not be as um easy to work with and things like that so taking the teeth out does seem to do the trick and in virtually all cases and the people i've talked to uh, veterinarians and clients alike have been uh, almost almost uniformly supportive of the surgery and horses that need it. We have a question that's come in from our live audience, um, and it was a popular one during registration as well. Um, Don wants to know what is the best way to improve an older horse's top line? Do some horses just have a genetic predisposition to get sway backed as they age? Um, Dr. Waldridge? You know, definitely in saddlebreds, it, it's been shown that there's a genetic predisposition for um, swaybacks and you know I think it, it's part of a natural change in older horses and, and sometimes that's the first thing you see with uh, Cushing's disease or should say pituitary part pituitary parts intermediate dysfunction is that those horses will lose their top line you know, I, I've had that be you know probably the last couple of years be the most common complaint on those horses and you know, the, the first thing I do is just look at the horse's nutrition, you know, make sure that they're getting fed enough, look at the 
rest of the body condition of the horse, you know, we body condition score horses, we look at the top line, but some of those horses, if you look at the rest of the horse, you can't see the ribs, you can easily feel them, they have plenty of muscle, and it just seems like that's a, a normal aging change in them. And, you know, in those horses, you know, there's some supplements available that, that are designed for top line, to help put top line back on the horse. And I'll test those horses for Cushing's disease and make sure it's not there, because Again, I think that's a pretty important and common sign. And another thing I'll do is add fat to their diet. And usually I'll do that with a rice bran pellet because rice bran pellets are really high in fat and they're really palatable. Most horses will eat that where some horses are a bit picky about oils and some of them will eat feed with added oil and then just decide they don't like it for a while and you have to stop and then start over. But the the rice bran pellets I've been really happy with is a, and they're easy and they're clean. They're easier on your feed tubs and things like that. So that's usually where I'll start. Make sure there's no um, Cushing's disease and then uh, start in a rice bran pellet. And you can sure do both too. I've did that on the last horse actually that I saw that had some top line losses, both positive for Cushing's and uh, we started some rice bran as well. Um, I have a question from our registration questions that I think pairs nicely with that, and it's from Joyce in South Carolina, and she wants to know if older horses need their saddles changed regularly as they age. Um, so what would your recommendation be for fitting saddles on these horses and getting their saddles looked at, and what concerns you might have about that? I'm probably the worst person in the world to answer that question, but one of the things I always look for is to you know, look for white hairs on the horse's wither and things like that that may be a sign that saddle fits a problem or saddle sores. So from from my standpoint, and I think from a veterinary standpoint, and somebody that uh, knows as much about tack as probably flying the space shuttle at times, is that, um, that I, you know, if you see that there may be a problem with uh, the wither or if you think you're getting a rub then you know don't assume that there might not be a problem because some of those especially an older horse that you know we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later may not have the best immune system you don't want to take a risk of, of getting a saddle rub or that may end up to being a problem that would be harder to clear up than it would be in a, in a younger horse or you know a horse where it, uh, a little bit easier to maintain the top line we have a question from Martha in Ontario, Canada, and she has a 19-year-old thoroughbred gelding that seems to be showing a, a few signs of Cushing's or PPID, um, but she said that his uh, blood tests have come back negative. How accurate are their tests, and how can she find out if her horse does have PPID? Yeah, you know, the test that, that we use the most now is to measure ACTH, which is adrenocorticotropic corticotropin hormone, which comes from the pituitary gland, which is where the abnormality is, and tells the adrenal gland it's time to make more steroids. And horses that have Cushing's disease, they overproduce that hormone. And, and so we tend to use that test as our most common test. And, you know, and it's a really good screening test, and it's a really accurate test. You know, one of the things with that test is, you know, depending on where you measure it, maybe it Maybe you don't get a, a number that's out of the normal range, but over the general course of the day, that hormone should go up and down. And these horses that have Cushing's, they kind of lose that normal up and down. It should be highest between 8 and 10 a.m. And so maybe they're in the normal range, but over the whole course of the day, they're higher than they should be. And 
you know, where to go from that. This time of year, from August to November, horses, all horses, tend to be higher in ACTH than they are at other times. And the people that do the research, and I, I definitely believe this is true clinically, say if you measure a horse at this time of the year between the northern hemisphere, should say, uh, between August and November, if their ACTH is normal, then they're probably more likely to be normal. Now, there are other tests you can do, other hormonal tests, which kind of add on to that and, and further test how the pituitary responds. You can you do the TRH test, which is a thyroid-releasing hormone test, where you give them thyroid-releasing hormone, which normally tells the, the pituitary, okay, we need to make more thyroid hormone. And for some reason, the horses have Cushing's disease, and as far as I know, it still isn't understood, those horses will make more ACTH, more steroid at that time. So that's a, a further test that can be done. And you can also, if necessary, combine that test with the test we used to use a lot, the dexamethasone suppression test. And dexamethasone is a steroid that probably everybody's pretty familiar with that we give for inflammation and things like hives or tendon injuries. And that's a steroid, so that should tell the, the pituitary gland that we don't need to make any more steroids. And so when that's combined, you're given a steroid that should tell the pituitary gland not to work. And you're doing given the thyroid releasing hormone, which says, and if you have Cushing's disease, that you'll make more steroids. So you can combine those tests and see if more steroid is produced or if more ACTH is produced. So there's a couple step ups that you can do uh, if you have a horse that you're suspicious in that you want to further confirm that are you know more. Um, there are stimulation tests or tests that try to uh, make the tell the pituitary gland, okay, we don't need to make more steroid. So for those horse owners who might be suspecting that their horses have PPID, what uh, kinds of clinical signs would they maybe notice in a horse that is heading that direction or, or that already has PPID? So the classic one is the horse that has the excessive hair coat, or if you read that in the book, so say hypertrichosis, so more hair than normal, and they don't shed out like a normal horse would in the spring. And and actually what's pretty interesting on that is in studies where they've looked at the excessive hair coat that doesn't shed, that's actually as reliable as any laboratory test to make the diagnosis. So that's the first thing that we tend to look for. The other things are that high levels of steroids tend to make horses drink more and urinate more. So those, to me, those three signs together are kind of my first signs of um, of suspecting Cushing's disease and then top line loss. And then, um, you know, nagging infections that don't go away as easily because that those high levels of steroids tend to have some immunosuppressive effects. And, you know, some of those horses will be a little bit more calmer than normal because the pituitary makes other hormones as well. And some of those can have a, a sedative effect on the horse. We received a question via email from Jen, and she says that she has an easy keeper with PPID. She wants to know what is the best plan to provide adequate forage and chew time throughout the day without having excessive weight gain? So, you know, if the horse has good body condition, if you can't can't see but can easily feel the ribs, what I tell people to do is we want to get a grass hay, try to get a mature grass hay. So I say go out and kind of buy 
you know, some uh, fairly middle of the road grass hay for those horses because you know, generally it's kind of that middle of the road, um, less good quality hay. It's going to be a little bit more mature, so it's going to have more fiber in it. It's going to probably have less sugar. So that's what I recommend people to do. Don't go out and get the great hay. Get the decent hay or the good hay. And uh, you know, as, as a general rule, that's going to be more mature and less sugar and also give the horse something to chew and, and hopefully not give it a lot more carbohydrate. So we've been talking about PPID quite a bit, and we did get a lot of questions about PPID during registration. Um, not so much about equine metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance. Are those two things that we will also see in our older horses? We can, and that's going to – we can see it if the horse is obese, excessive body condition. And and one of the things that you'll read about with that is what's called regional adiposity. So those are the horses that tend to put – fat in weird areas so they may put fat in the crest of their neck or sometimes if you look at their hind end around their tail head you'll see that they're kind of have that lumpy fat back in there and those horses can have metabolic syndrome and, and we're learning more that that fat acts not only as an energy storage organ but also as an endocrine organ and what it does is it also can create steroids or produce steroids and when the steroids come from the fat or from the excessive ACTH, steroids tend to have an antagonistic effect on insulin. So we may have enough insulin in the body, but due to those steroids, insulin isn't able to have its normal effect. So that's why we may see things like laminitis because it can affect blood flow to the foot or those horses, one of their responses is to make more insulin in an attempt to make up for their insulin not working. So if you measure insulin, those horses may have excessively high insulin levels. Okay. Um, we have a question from our live audience. Anne wants to transition a 19-year-old horse to barefoot now that he's retiring from competition. He struggled with some navicular-related lameness on and off throughout his career, and he's been wearing therapeutic shoes, um, specifically a wedge. What advice do you have for transitioning a horse from shoes to barefoot for retirement? And is it possible that this horse won't be able to retire barefoot? You know, it, it's sure possible, and I think it depends a bit on how intensive the management was to keep that horse comfortable before um, before it was retired. You know, if it was one of those ones that um, needed the occasional joint injection and, and needed to be on butte and things like that to to keep it comfortable, then, then that's going to be a little tougher. But once once the shoes are pulled, one of the things we do want to do with those horses is try and maintain heel and a shorter toe. And by maintaining heel, we're going to have less uh, pressure on that navicular bone and hopefully help keep the horse more sound because a low heel is going to make more pressure on that bone from the deep flexor tendon that ties into the coffin bone. So, you know, paying attention to the toe and for sure leaving as much heel as we could in that horse uh, will help. But I think it, it just depends on the, if it was pretty intensive management before retirement, then those horses are probably going to be a little tougher to go barefoot once they're retired. Do you have any recommendations for signs that that horse isn't doing well barefoot and needs to go back to shoes? Well, the biggest thing would just be persistent lameness. And, and you know, the lameness from um, navicular is kind of described as a, as a horse that that's sort of walking on eggshells, you know, that they tend to take little short choppy steps. It tends to affect both forefeet. So, 
you know, they look like they're kind of lame in both and taking little short, choppy, uncomfortable steps. You know, that, that would be the most common thing I think you would see. Okay. Sherry in our live audience has a question about ring bone. She said, what do you recommend for feeding and managing an older horse with early ring bone? She, she says that her mare still wants to trot and canter when ridden, but that her vet just wants the horse to walk. Yeah, the, you kind of get arthritis one of two ways, either get uh, abnormal forces on a normal joint or normal forces on an abnormal joint. And, and with um, having ring bone, and it depends a little bit on what joint it is. If it's uh, in the pasture joint, those horses do better than to have, which is high ring bone, than horses have low ring bone, which is in the coffin, uh, coffin joint. Yeah, I would try to treat to feed to avoid excessive body condition because if we have lighter weight, hopefully we're putting less abnormal less uh, forces on that abnormal joint. So uh, that would be the biggest thing: uh, main feed to not have excessive um, body condition. And you know, you could try some supplements like omega three fatty acids in humans, and it's been shown in horses too, help to alleviate lameness and at least have some uh, some effects to. Uh, to offset some of the inflammation and pain with that. Um, we have a question from Bobby in Maryland. Bobby wants to know what you think of um, mechanized floating of teeth in older horses. I, I think it's fine in the right hand. You know, the, their older horses are going to tend to have less tooth um, root than older horses, than sorry, younger horses. So you know, as long as you take your time with those and check make sure we check uh, regularly to make sure we don't take uh, too much tooth off and open up the pulp cavity then uh it, is, then it should be fine you know sometimes in these older horses if they have wave mouth which is just uneven wear of those back teeth you know, sometimes you almost have to use um the power floats and all to be able to get some of those ridges off the way you want them you'll never get those wave mouth back like it would be in say a three or four year old but you know oftentimes it takes that specialized equipment to kind of get that tooth the way you want it to be especially you know in a timely manner because the other thing you trade off with floating teeth um, with uh, hand tools is that speculum's in their mouth longer so older horse you could potentially make their jaws hurt more and make them more likely to go off feed and things like that so you know it, it's always a bit of a trade-off for uh speed and accuracy versus being able to maybe be a little finer with your hand floats. But um, you know, I think in the right hands, I would have no worries about that. Our next question is from our live audience. Lisa wants to know if horses older than 30 should still get vaccinated. I recommend it um, because, you know, especially depending on where you are in the country, the sleeping sickness or eastern eastern equine cephalomyelitis, you know, probably everybody's seen. There's been a, cases of that up in the northeast, you know, up in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, places like that. Whereas normally we'd see that down south. Think about states like Louisiana and Florida, where there's longer mosquito seasons. You know, from practicing down south, you know, it wasn't uncommon. We recommended vaccinating twice a year. It wasn't uncommon when you'd see those diseases that the horse would be a little bit over six months from his last vaccination. So, you know, the, those diseases, especially eastern equine cephalomyelitis or sleeping sickness or EEE, triple E, you know, those, those diseases are almost 100% fatal, virtually 
100% fatal. So I sure recommend it. Um, and, you know, the AEP recommends that uh, yearly for every horse at every situation, uh, West Eastern, Western, and West Nile. So um, I think it's sure worth doing. I wouldn't overlook it and or just assume that because that's an older horse, they have good immunity. If your horse is um, older and retired and not traveling so much, are there some risk-based vaccines that it might not need, or would you still consider some risk-based vaccines for senior horses? You know, I I would probably think about things like um, flu if horses are – or older horses or, you know, still going to shows or still getting commingled, you know, trail rides, things like that, because there's been some studies showing that older horses, when they're vaccinated, don't respond as well to influenza as they do, say, to rabies. Rabies was the other vaccine they looked at. Found rabies was pretty good between horses, old horses and young horses, but there was a difference in flu. So, you know, I think if they commingle, it would be worth doing flu and also doing the herpes viruses because, those are still two of the most common respiratory viruses that they can pick up. Okay. We have a question from Bert in our live audience. Bert asks, how do I put weight on a 21-year-old draft horse who was treated for EPM last month and is now a body condition score of three? Uh, Rice Brown with senior feed and Bermuda hay is, I think, what he is suggesting that he's currently feeding. So first, can you explain to us a little bit about what EPM is um, and then why that horse's condition might be suffering because of that and then some suggestions for getting some weight on this old guy. So EPM is caused by protozoa and it affects the spinal cord generally and um, it's um, spread in uh, a possum manure and it um, can cause localized lesions of inflammation in the spinal cord that may affect where the nerves come out to different muscle groups. And part of that's why horses that have EPM can have muscle loss because if you you cut a nerve that goes to a muscle, then you've lost the stimulus to that muscle to contract because even when muscles aren't actively contracting, those nerves still help to maintain tone. So EPM can cause some denervation loss of muscle, which is going to be trickier to get back. And and generally, it takes about 10 to 14 days after you've had a a nerve injury before you start to lose muscle mass. So you're kind of lagging behind when you start to see that. I I think uh, already a pretty good plan. I I love a rice brand to put weight on horses. Other things to think about would be a vitamin E selenium supplement because those do a good job for muscle health and vitamin E also helps in the spinal cord which has some anti-inflammatory effects and can at least to some degree help with some healing in the spinal cord with neurologic disease. Uh, with uh, uh, And what was the hay again, I'm sorry? Bermuda. Bermuda grass, you know, as a whole is going to be a higher fiber um, hay, so it may be worth looking for a, you know, another grass hay like a Timothy or alfalfa, if that's available, or alfalfa is not grass hay, but a legume hay. And the legume hay, such as alfalfa, the advantage there would be a higher protein content, which should help with the with some muscle gain as well. So, uh, you know, Bermuda grass tends to be about oh, 08 or 9%, maybe 10% protein, and a higher in, a fi- in fiber content than some of the other ones. So I would um, you know, you know, try to switch forages because I think that would help as well. Yeah. I'm... 
We have a, another question about keeping weight on an older horse. Rena in Pennsylvania wants to know if you have any suggestions for feeding a 27-year-old warm blood to keep her weight up over winter. She said the horse gets good quality hay. So is there a point where these horses need to transition to a complete senior feed that meets all their, their forage and nutritional needs? And, and how do you know when the right time is for that? Yeah, you know, for me, it, it kind of goes with um, the dentition, how, how how good are their teeth. So if they're a horse that's having some dental problems, then you're probably going to benefit by going to a complete pellet, which, you know, in theory, with a complete pellet, you shouldn't need to feed any additional forage, although, you know, the horses benefit from forage, like the question earlier, you know, it gives them something to do, just the act of chewing and producing Saliva has bicarbonate, which helps to buffer the acid in the stomach and helps to reduce ulceration and things like that. So, you know, if the horse has bad teeth, they're going to benefit from that complete pellet because they're going to have less less chewing to do. And then those complete pellets are vitamin mineral fortified also, so it's going to be a good way to help get those vitamin and mineral needs met. And um, you know, as a whole, we can feed a little bit more of that. Maybe we wouldn't have to worry about the horse eating as much forage. So, so it, it's a good way to get more energy and more uh, nutrients into the horse. Um, but uh, and if the horse isn't maintaining its weight with an average diet, you know, say we're feeding um, the horse is still able to chew, but may still want to go to a complete pellet just because it's a little also a little easier digested to the horse. So, um, I think if they're not keeping up with what you're doing. But especially if they don't have um, good teeth, and I think that's you know the two biggest reasons I can think of to to start trying to complete pellets. Okay. Barbara in Pennsylvania is asking about feeding corn oil to add calories and weight for a horse. She wants to know if doing so increases inflammation. You know the 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 thought that comes from behind that is, is corn oil tends to be higher in omega-6 fatty acids and and that's just a difference in how that that fatty acid is made for the omega-3s versus omega-6s and and it just goes back to organic chemistry which i got to take twice so i, I know a lot about that one but um so it's really the position of where that is but the interesting thing is depending on where that omega-3 is on that acid if we start with an omega-6 fatty acid and it goes through the inflammatory cascades when there's injury, then it triggers a signal in the cell. And if we start with omega-6 fatty acid, that tends to make more inflammatory prostaglandins, which are things that are produced with inflammation. And they sensitize nerves to pain. They increase blood vessels uh, size, increase blood flow and things like that. So they kind of tend to cause inflammation, but if we start with an omega-3 fatty acid, we'll flow through that same inflammatory cascade, but the things we end up making there at the end tend to be less inflammatory than we started with an omega-6 fatty acid. So the omega-6 fatty acids themselves don't really make the horse be geared up or pro-inflammatory, but if we help to feed more omega-3s, then they do have an anti, uh, a decreasing or anti-inflammatory effect because what we make in the end 
will tend to cause less um, inflammatory changes in the end. So there's kind of beneficial prostaglandins and less beneficial prostaglandins. But you know, prostaglandins themselves, there's a lot of necessary functions of those, like they help to pr promote mucus production in the stomach and they help ulcers to heal and promote blood flow. But we also have prostaglandins that make us be more likely to have pain and um, swell and things like that. So there is a balance in horses that are on a f high forage diet or in, on grass tend to have a higher omega-3 fatty acid intake than horses that aren't. So, so there is a balance, but you won't necessarily tip your horse by feeding omega-6s. Kind of a long answer, but um, yeah, there, uh, that's the importance between the two. Yeah. Well, and I think it's an important answer, too, because corn oil for so long was something that, that we turned to um, to help put weight on our horses. Um, you mentioned protein. Uh, Denise in our live audience wants to know how much protein does an older retired horse need? Is there a percentage we should be looking for in our feeds and in our hay analysis? It, it is. You know, the, the number is shockingly low that uh, adult horses at maintenance, so that horse is neither gaining weight nor losing weight that aren't in a in a heavy work requirement because work really doesn't require doesn't increase the protein requirement that much. Only need about ten percent protein, and, and you know it's really hard to find ten percent protein feeds, especially commercial feeds. And you know it seems like if you go looking around, twelve percent is about as low as you'll ever find. So. Virtually anything that you're going to find on the shelf within reason is going to be 12 percent or higher, so that we should be given plenty of protein with that. You know, the, the exception would be a horse that you're trying to put weight on, or if you had a rescue horse and things like that, then they are going to need more protein. But for that horse under most conditions that isn't in heavy work, that's a fed an adequate diet, it's pretty hard to underfeed on the or to uh, uh, right to underfeed on the protein. We have a question from Christine, Florida, about ration balancers. And just for the audience, a ration balancer is that the feed that you feed a small amount and it has all the vitamins and minerals and it has fat and protein for your horse in a smaller serving. Um, so she is saying that even just that ration balancer will put weight on her easy keeping horse that's only on hay otherwise. Um, what alternatives might you suggest to make sure that horse gets the nutrients that it needs without the added calories. Yeah, that that's a tough question because um, generally those ration balancers are, are pretty minimal. And you know the way I've described them to um, to clients is they're like a multivitamin for horses. And you know, hopefully there's not too many calories in your multivitamin, but um, maybe just shop around and, and look and read the label also and read that label and see if there's a a carrier in the, the ration balancer pellet that may be a a source of energy. You know, look for just look in there, see if there's corn or if it's a alfalfa based or something like that, and maybe try to find another one that um, has a, a doesn't have a carrier that may be supplying some calories. Because um, yeah, that, that that's a tough question because most horses that are on a ration balancer are usually um, pretty easy keepers and uh, not really getting much extra from it other than the vitamins and minerals. Yeah. We have a question from Fiona in Scotland, and she said that a recent blood test showed that her older horse is slightly anemic. What might cause this, and is there anything she can do? Yeah, the most common cause of anemia in a horse, or really any animal, is uh, chronic inflammation. And one thing that the body does 
when there's infection is it'll try to grab onto iron because bacteria also need iron to grow and as we know iron is important for red blood cell production so whenever there's anemia i'll ask myself is there any possibility this horse may have an infection somewhere so i'll look at the white blood cell count and see if that's high because general generally it will be if there's an infection and Another thing that we look at in horses are, uh, is fibrinogen, which is an inflammatory protein, and, and that will go up with infection. Uh, we also have the uh, test for serum amyloid A now, which is also another indicator of infection in the horse. So I would look at those things, look at white blood cell count, look at fibrinogen, look at serum amyloid A. And then there's different things that we look at on the on the complete blood count on that report that you get back that – that talks about what the white count is and what the red count is. And one of them we look at is packed cell volume or hematocrit. And, and what that tells you is the percent of red blood cells that are in the blood. So if we spin down the liquid portion of the blood, the packed cell volume is what percent of that is, is red blood cells. And, you know, generally if that number is normal, I don't tend to worry much about the other things like there's an RBC which is red blood cell count because it, it's harder for me to make that determination. I I tend to go more on the pack packed um, pack cell volume or hematocrit. So it it and some people will use hematocrit as a um, determiner of anemia. In humans, they'll use um, uh, hemoglobin, and we really don't use that much in horses. And hemoglobin measures that red pigment, red blood cells that helps that makes them carry oxygen. So if you use hemoglobin, hemoglobin might be low, but those other numbers may be right. So to me, whenever I get a call about a horse that's anemic, I'll you know, ask if the person can uh, email me that report so I can look at it. Because um, depending on the definition of anemia, you could use any of those three things. And so uh, I, I like to look at all those together and um, then try to determine if there's really a reason. You know, a lot of times if they're pretty close to normal, it's really not very significant. If you rebled that horse in two to four weeks, it'd probably be normal. We have a question from Janet in our live audience. She wants to know if if stem cell injections can help old injuries heal in senior horses. She said she's debating whether it's worth the expense. That's a great question. There, there shouldn't be any reason why stem cells shouldn't help you know, if you if you say gave the same problem, say a tendon in an older horse versus a younger horse, and you're going to use stem cells to help heal that tendon injury, there should be a reason I know of why that should be different between the two. I think it more depends on what injury you have. You know, we, we probably know a lot more about uh, things like tendon injuries with stem cells than we do some of the other conditions. So. You know, if it was a tendon, I'll, I'll use that as my example again. I wouldn't expect there to be any difference um, because, really, they, those stem cells, however they're able to do it, should be able to figure out, okay, this is what I got to do, and go in there and heal that tendon. Or if they get injected locally, I would not expect. But I don't think anybody's looked at that, as far as I know. But I wouldn't expect there to be significant differences, other than you know, older horses are going to heal a lot slower than younger horses, no matter what their problem is. We have a question from Shirley in Illinois, and Shirley wants to know if anything can be done about big melanomas. That's a great question. I, 
And in older gray horses, generally when they get to be 15 years of age or so, we're going to start to see melanomas pop up. And, you know, the thing I really like in those cases, and and I put um, older horses on this, is, is cimetidine, which is an ulcer drug. But what that's been shown to do is help the immune system and help the immune system be able to fight against the cancer that's in those um melanomas it's also used some in humans you know you will find pretty strong opinions on that between veterinarians i'll say though you either love cimetidine or you hate it so sometimes i kind of take a step back if i mention that to a veterinarian because there's tend to be pretty pretty strong opinions one way or another and i just don't want to get hit with a twitch by some but but uh it um i i do like that in my experience with cimetidine in horses that have melanomas it tends to keep them from getting worse and maybe get some shrinkage you know there's some work that's going on now and there is a veterinary oncologist who is able to make uh, custom melanoma vaccines for you where you you take a piece of the tumor off of your horse and send that off and, and can get a custom melanoma vaccine made yeah there's still ongoing work because in humans melanomas tend to be pretty immunogenic and there is a dog vaccine also that's available that's been used in horses uh you have to go through a veteran veterinary oncologist to get that vaccine through your veterinarian so it's you know there's some extra steps to get a hold of that but it is available and i know the university of florida has done some work on uh, trying to develop an equine melanoma vaccine as well so you know it's one of those things that hopefully in the not too far off future we may have some equine-specific vaccines. And, and I have used one. That company um, no longer produces it, but I had great results with a, uh, an autologous. I mean, I took the tumor off the horse and made a vaccine and re-injected it into the horse to uh, shrink melanomas, and that horse was also on cimetidine. So uh, I, I'm a big fan of cimetidine, although um, the, you'll find as many veterinarians love it as hate it. Yeah, I think I've known lots of people who have loved gray horses uh, over the years who sure wish there was a, a really great solution for these melanomas. Can you explain a little bit about where they show up and when they become life-threatening for an older horse? Yeah, where they tend to go is uh, the base of the tail. Uh, both um, geldings and stains and mares is, is tend to be around the anus and base of the tail, and, and those melanomas can grow large enough that the horse can't raise their tail to defecate correctly, and they'll start to get where the horse has some difficulty passing manure. Some of those will be a bit internal as well, and the horse may have trouble passing manure, um, you know, through the rectum and. You know, on the sheath, uh, they'll grow. You also can see them in the parotid salivary gland, which is that big salivary gland that's up there at the throat latch or at the angle of the jaw. And, you know, they they don't tend to be malignant in horses like they do, you know, in humans and dogs. But so they're locally invasive, meaning where they are, they tend to cause problems. But it's rare that they'll go elsewhere. But, again, if they're over – gray horses over 15 years of age – you know, tend to be uh, where we start to see those. And Julie in our live audience is asking a follow-up question. She'd like to know what the mortality rate is for horses with melanoma. It, it, it somewhat depends. You know, the, the horses, 
that I have put down for melanomas, it, it's almost always those hind end problems, you know, tail head and, and perineum, which is just the, the back of the horse there around the rectum and the vulva. And, and those can just get large enough that the horse isn't able to, to pass manure and it just, or interfere with manure and it just becomes a quality of life issue. So, um, you know, I, I think it's reasonably rare to put down a horse solely for melanoma, but, um, you, you unfortunately do see it. It's, it's, not one that that tends to get other places. You know, occasionally you see it in the spinal cord and see horses that that get a ataxia or gait problems or paralysis. I've seen a few get them in their um, parotid salivary glands and their guttural pouches there in the back of the throat that may interfere with swallowing. So it's um, you know, they tend to be pretty insidious. So they they grow very slowly over time, but um. Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of the rare horse that you, you have to put down purely for melanoma, but it's not not a not hugely uncommon. We have a question from Sue in Arizona. She says that she has a 20-year-old horse that falls asleep standing, will buckle, and almost fall down. She said the horse has no problems otherwise getting up or down. What's up with her horse? Now that that's a that's a really good question there because and I think the important thing in that question is that the horse can get up and down because that's the first thing I ask in those horses and because a lot of times we get a call on that you know the horse has narcolepsy because if you if you watch them you'll see kind of their head drops and drops and the knee buckles buckles and then all of a sudden they just catch themselves or sometimes they'll even stumble sideways and as long as the horse can get up and down the, the important thing there is that you know that generally that horse is able to lay down and sleep. You know, horses are are uh, are where I wish I could be. They only need about three hours of sleep a night of, of deep REM dream type sleep, but they have to get to where they can lay down to get into REM sleep. So if a horse has an orthopedic problem or pain, or I saw a horse today that I think may have neurologic problems where the horse is afraid to lay down because sometimes they're afraid, can I get back up? If they can't lay down to sleep, then they never get to that deep sleep. And, you know, they're like me driving home in uh, the springtime where you catch yourself going to sleep and catch yourself to wake up. And, and that's what they do. They're sleep deprived. The other really interesting thing uh, that uh, Dr. Bertone has done, and he's you know written up, I think, quite a few of these cases is horses also are a bit dependent on herd hierarchy to sleep and if you think about when you've been out driving in herds of horses a lot of times you, when they're taking like their sun naps you'll see that everybody's laid out but one horse and there's one horse standing in the middle kind of watching everything and that some horses really need that guardian that they think's watching out for them before they're comfortable to lay down and sleep so i got into that with the horse this year too where we we really couldn't figure out the horse was having sleep difficulties. So we, in the end, we turned it out with other horses. So it would be in a herd to hopefully have that horse that they know is watching out for them. So they'd lay down and sleep. I haven't heard back on how that horse did, but we really couldn't find an orthopedic problem. So we tried putting it with a buddy and tried to turn it out with other horses. But that's important. Sometimes those horses, you give them a buddy or put them out in a group and then they, feel more secure and they'll lay down and get that deep sleep that they need. So uh, sleeping horses is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we have a question from Cheryl in Ontario, Canada, and Cheryl wants to know what the best way is to ease stiffness in her older horse's joints. You know, the, the, the things that help are omega-3 fatty acids, so that would be things like fish oil uh, or flax oil. Fish oil is our best animal source of omega-3 fatty acids, and flax oil is the best uh, vegetable source. Uh, that's been shown in, in several research studies to help with uh, stiffness and, and lameness. So other things would be to use the glucosamine chondroitin supplement. Uh, the avocado uh, extracts have been shown also to help with that. So I, I, I'm a big fan of omega-3 fatty acids to to help with inflammation, help with lameness, and supplements that contain both uh, glucosamine and chondroitin. So I, I think those combinations and you know there are some supplements out there that have hyaluronic acid in it which helps for joint lubrication as well so uh you know i would try a joint supplement in those horses first for uh you know to try and uh, attack that nutritionally so once a horse has started showing signs of stiffness have they progressed into joint disease to a point where a supplement might not help them it depends because you can have synovitis which is the the you know, the joint capsule itself can be inflamed versus uh, osteoarthritis, which would be the bone itself or the where the the ligaments and tendons may insert. So, you know, if you had something like synovitis, those horses would be more likely to respond to um, to omega threes and things like that. Where if you had true changes to bone, then those are a little bit harder to deal with. We have a question from Dawn in Florida. She has a Tennessee walking horse who's 26 and still looks and acts very fit. She wants to know if she should assume he has arthritis at his age, even though he isn't showing any signs of it. You know, if you radiograph that horse take x-rays, you know, it's very possible and probably likely that you'll see some changes. But, you know, as long as the horse is sound, then uh, whatever arthritis it has, uh, should be fairly minor and not enough to hold it back. So, you know, that's one of those things I always say horses are allowed to have bumps and maybe not have the best looking joints, but as long as they're sound, I'm not going to get too worried about it. So, you know, if we look close enough, probably there are going to be some changes in those joints, but, you know, lameness and the, the horse's ability to do the work that you want it to do would be far important indicators for me. You know, as long as the horse doesn't show you anything, then uh, whatever's there, I would expect to be pretty insignificant, or at least not clinically significant. Rose sent in her question via email. She wants to know what your thoughts are on using Equiox on an ongoing basis for ring bone discomfort. Can you explain what Equiox is and then how it might be used for osteoarthritis in horses? So Equiox is a drug called ferrocoxib, and so going back to uh, more organic chemistry, we're in organic chemistry too now. Uh, that, that, that there's um, uh, it took me a while to get there the first time, that's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I, I um, never did get there. So I, <laughs> that's why I'm a journalist, yeah. Dr. Waldridge. Uh, yeah, my my first organic chemistry to teacher told me to quit school and get a job. He was probably right, but uh, we uh, that there's. The enzymes that we talked about, that inflammatory cascade, there's the, the final enzymes called cyclooxygenase, and there's cyclooxygenase 1, and its job is to make kind of those good prostaglandins that we need to help heal the stomach and things like that. And then there's cyclooxygenase 2, and, and that one's turned on when there's inflammation and damage to the cell. 
And so what ferrocoxib and all those, and, and if you look at those drugs, all in the coxib, C-O-X-I-B, they work on that COX-2, that cyclooxygenase 2 enzyme. And so if you think about that, they kind of block, I would say it's like the forest. They block the bad side of the forest, but let the good side of the forest work. And so they're taking out those um, prostaglandins to do things like cause pain and swelling. So we're hopefully going to do things like be able to block the bad effects like soreness, lameness, inflammation, but also protect the kidney and protect the stomach. So that's the advantage of using those drugs. And so I, I think it's a little bit horse dependent on those. Some horses do better where those um, – like ferrocoxib block helps them to be very happy and comfortable and other horses don't. So I say it's always worth a shot. You know, if you're worried about that in your horse, those long-term effects, because, you know, some people have found that you can still get some inflammation of the gut with using those drugs, or at least thought they've seen that effect. As I always say, pick a day of the week and, you know, whatever day you want. I always told clients Sunday, because like that's the easiest one to remember, is just see if you can skip a day, just to let let the – kidney and stomach take a break from it. So, um, you know, that that's something you can do if you're worried that it may be causing problems in your horse. But, you know, generally those drugs are pretty safe and we don't worry about those as much as we do drugs like Butte because Butte doesn't care which one of those cyclooxygenase enzymes it blocks. So it blocks the bad side and it blocks the good side. And that's why we're more likely to see things like ulcers and, and kidney problems with Butte. We have a question from Christy in Michigan, and she wants to know if older horses are more prone to colic as they age. Yeah, that's a really good question, too, because as a whole, they're not. However, there's some colics we're more likely to see in older horses, and the one that probably comes up the most is the pedunculated lipomas, and what those are is horses as they age, and again, if I remember this right, it's about 15 years of age, you start to see these, is they get a benign fatty tumor, and where it forms is usually on the small intestinal. You can't see it other places. And it can it begins at the mesentery, and the best way I know to describe the mesentery is it's like if you think that the small intestine is, is suspended at the bottom of a shower curtain, at the bottom of the shower curtain where the small intestine attaches is where those lipomas occur. And they're fatty, benign fatty tumors, but they enlarge with time. And they'll pull off a stalk of that mesentery, that connective tissue. So it's kind of like a rock tied to a string. And potentially those things can wrap around the small intestine and strangulate it. And so that's kind of our our, our bad colic that we, we can see in older horses. And that's the one you always worry about if you have an older horse colic, and especially if you take it to a surgery and you're worried it has a small intestinal lesion. So those are more common, much more common in older horses. And the other thing we can see sometimes is in, in horses, as they age, their liver tends to shrink, especially on the right side. And that can predispose horses to a type of colic called an epiploic foramen entrapment. An epiploic foramen is basically just a, a potential space, and I kind of describe it like your pocket. You know, you, there's a potential space. You could put something in your pocket, but if you don't have anything in your pocket, then that space doesn't have anything in it. But as that liver shrinks, then that potential space is larger, and small intestine can pass through that hole easier and get strangulated also and tend to be small intestine or would be small intestine. So those colics are more common in older horses just because of 
age-related changes or those those uh, lipomas tend to get larger and more likely to cause problems as the horse gets gets older. Okay. Well, Dr. Waldridge, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for tonight. I want to thank you for joining us and answering the questions. You've been great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I sure appreciate it. I think you guys do a great job there at the horse. I'm, I'm always happy to help. Well, thank you, and thank you for taking care of those old horses uh, out at um, out at the farm. Um, for everyone who's listening, please join us next month. We're going to be talking about disaster planning for your horse. Until then, from all of us here at the horse, we hope you have a great night.